0: We are uh, picking back up with the book of Mark. We're going through it. And when you get, and I've I've said this, we're in the last third of the book. Mark 11 really, really begins the march into Jerusalem. He's already been headed towards Jerusalem. But this is the entrance into Jerusalem. And uh, it covers the Passion Week. Uh, It covers what we typically talk about at Easter but we try to scrunch everything down into a Sunday uh, when we talk about that. Um, so this, this will allow us to spend time going through all the events that happened. Um, so this morning we're reading Mark 11, 1 through 11, and then we'll uh, pray and we'll dive into what's going on here. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you this morning in the precious name of Jesus, and we thank you today that you are watching over your word to perform it. Lord, we are reading about your, what's commonly called triumphal entry. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see what you need us to see. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, open my mouth as a uh, as a pen of a ready writer that I would speak um, the oracles of God clearly and concisely as I should. Lord, we thank you for that this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, this... Entry into Jerusalem really begins uh, with verse 1 saying that they're drawing near to Jerusalem. So I want to remind everybody because it's been, we've had several weeks be- since we've been in the book of Mark. I actually want you to scooch back to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Because I want to remind you of something to help make Mark 11 make sense. I want to remind you of the the beginning of Jesus starting this journey towards Jerusalem. Mark 10.32 says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now, we're not going to redo that sermon, but immediately after that, Jesus tells them, I am going to suffer. I am going to be crucified. This is what's going to happen. But the thing about this verse that's really important, and I just sometimes we we approach the Bible and you already have it in your head, as my dad would say, you've already psyched yourself out. Like you go you go to. I remember we played the uh, when I was in high school, we had the unfortunate privilege of playing a nationally ranked basketball team. And before we ever got to the game, we were already defeated because they were nationally ranked by ESPN. We had to go in and play these guys, and, uh, and we actually took them to overtime. Uh, but anyway, that's neither that's here nor there. But the, the moral of the story was and is that before we ever got there, because they were nationally ranked, we just thought, we're just a little podunk team from West Virginia. We have no chance whatsoever. So we were defeated before we ever started. We do that with the Bible. We will approach the Bible this way. I'm just a dumb country hillbilly, and I don't understand all of it. And I'm just, it, why does it have to be so complicated anyway? I just want it to be simple. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you're brave, you will. Has anybody ever, uh, anybody ever felt that way? Like It's just too hard. And so you approach the scripture as it like, oh, I don't even understand it. I'll just read a verse so I can say that I did, and then if somebody were to ask me, did you read your Bible today? I could say, yes, I most certainly did. I couldn't tell you what I read, but I did it. That's all that matters. I I checked it off. So we approach Scripture like we can't get it. We can't understand it. But really, all you've got to do is just slow down, ask God for help, and just recognize that when the Bible sounds weird... It might just be a moment for you to stop and ask some questions. To me, this is a moment in Scripture that's weird. That's why I'm pointing it out again, because it's important, I believe, for Mark 11. Because it's not weird for Jesus to be walking ahead of the disciples. The disciples are supposed to be following Jesus. It's built into the definition of disciple. It literally in Hebrew means they are wearing the dust of the rabbi. Meaning you are so close to the guy in front of you that as he walks and there's dust coming up behind him, you've got his dust on your clothes. I am following my teacher. So the disciples are following Jesus for three years now by the time you get to Mark chapter 10. So why in the world is the next sentence they were amazed? How many miles did they walk together? We don't know, hundreds? And now all of a sudden, following Jesus, they're amazed and afraid. And remember, we talked about this, that something has changed because verse 32, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and the mood all change. It just completely changes. Because now, going into Jerusalem, Jesus has set his face like flint that he is going to accomplish what he came to do, which is die for our sin. And something about that, the text doesn't tell us, the only clue we get is that something about the way Jesus starts walking towards Jerusalem, they are like, whoa, what is happening? I think that is important because when you go now, go back over to verse 1 of chapter 11, now they've been walking towards Jerusalem since 1032. Now they're drawing near to Jerusalem. They're on the east. They're coming up to the Mount of Olives. Anybody heard of the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives, and you can look. It's 2,600 feet high. You're looking down into the city of Jerusalem. There's two areas there, Bethphage and Bethany. And Jesus stops. So now you can see he's looking in from this viewpoint of the Mount of Olives. And he has these really interesting instructions. Go into the village in front of you. and Immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied. Now a colt is a young donkey, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And then he says, if anybody asks you what's going on, tell them the Lord has need of it, and they're going to let you have it. Now, the There's something unique here. I was reading a commentary, and they pointed this out, and I thought, you know, that is—it's a really good, a really good point. Mark is the Cliff Notes version of the Gospels. It is the shortest of all the Gospels. It's 16 chapters. He compresses the narrative down to just—he's giving you a concentrated uh, viewpoint of what's going on. So why does he take six verses to explain this little detail with the? With the donkey. He's, he's taking time out to say, here's exactly what happened. Now, the other gospel accounts, uh, they also reference this, but Mark just gives all this detail. And then when we get into the rest of the, the, it, there's less detail about things that seem like they're important. So, the title of my sermon this morning is Jesus Knows. Doesn't really sound like a deep revelatory statement that Jesus knows, because of course he knows. But this is one of these moments where, and you're going to see here, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and exactly what he's trying to accomplish, and nobody else does. Jesus is actually here referencing in the other. Uh, Matthew and John both mention this verse. It's Zechariah. You don't have to turn there, but I think we'll have it up here on the screen. Jesus is actually fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is intentionally and specifically fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's not the only verse that he's specifically fulfilling. Because the Jewish people are looking for this guy. They're looking, and notice here in verse 10, uh, the rest of the language of Zechariah. This is the prophetic expectation of Israel for hundreds of years, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. You get the imagery there that we're talking about a man with war and we are going to win. You you get that vibe all over the Old Testament that the Messiah is coming and he will make all things right, which is true. But everybody in the Jewish expectation in the first century, all of their expectation was this guy is going to be like a Samson being able to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey and a David able to lead men in the battle and kill Goliath. And he's going to be supernaturally strong and wise. He's going to be able to do all this stuff. And we are going to lead an army. And these stupid Romans, they are toast when he shows up. That is the way that they're thinking. That is not the way that it happened. But it is the way that it will end, by the way. Just as a a spoiler alert, the book of Revelation and the second coming of Christ, all of those images of it being set right are coming true. I just want to say this is not my notes, but there is justice coming. which should be slightly terrifying. A lot of times people say they want God. Why isn't God fair? You do not want him to be fair. Because if he was fair and executed justice right now, everybody dies. Because everybody has sinned against a holy God who is restraining and in his mercy allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But there is a day of reckoning. There, there are people that have murdered and killed and stolen and raped and done all kinds of things, and they got away with it here. They will not get away with it in eternity because there is a just God. And part of the expectation of Israel was that when the Messiah comes, He is setting everything right, which is true. They had no context for Him coming to set it right the way that He did. They see a war. And instead, what they got was a suffering servant Savior who came to us as the Lamb of God. But the second time He comes, He comes as the Lion. Of the tribe of Judah, that's at the end of everything. Here's another place, Genesis chapter forty nine. We went through this when we when we did the book of Genesis, and at the at the end um, of of Jacob's life, he is talking to the twelve patriarchs who become the twelve tribes of Israel, and he's prophesying to them, what the future of their family tree is going to look like. And he skips over the first couple guys because of the sin in their life, and he arrives at Judah. And when he talks to Judah, Genesis 49, verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. This is where we get lion of the tribe of Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What he's saying here, what Jacob is telling Judah, his son, is that the ruling scepter, a king's scepter, that signifies rule, will never depart from Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. The ruling scepter will never depart. In fact, the Messiah is coming through you. Some of your translations, if you have a King James or a New King James, instead of it saying until tribute comes, there's some dispute over what the Hebrew really means. I don't want to bore you with all that. But some, some translations say until Shiloh comes. I mean, you grew up in an old-time church and uh, remember some old songs and hymns about Shiloh coming. It's a reference to the Messiah coming. But verse 11 says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. In the Old Testament, looking forward to the Messiah coming, both of these passages we're reading are telling us but there's a donkey, there's a colt, there is a foal that is involved. Now, to for the sake of time, I want to let you know the Mishnah, which is a, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, what it says is, is that the king is supposed to ride on a donkey or on a horse that nobody else has ever ridden. Now, normally, you would not want to do that. Because, how many of you remember Spirit, the Disney horse movie? Anybody remember the Disney horse movie? So you may remember, this is a vague reference, this is what happens when you grow up with children. I have a lot of cartoon movies in my head. So, uh, in Spirit, does so anybody remember how easy it was to ride him the first time? Uh, he didn't let anybody ride him. So that's the way a horse is, and the way a donkey is. If you stick a human being on top of that animal... Uh, it doesn't want you there, and it will get rid of you. But but in the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary said, when the king comes, he's going to ride on the, and he's the only one allowed on it. So Jesus specifically says, on which no one has ever sat. So Jesus knows what he's doing here. Jesus knows that he's fulfilling Zechariah. He's fulfilling Genesis 49. He also knows what the Jewish commentaries say, what the prevailing opinions are. He's fulfilling all of that. But ain't nobody else know that. Here's here's how we know that. Go to John chapter 12. This is the same account in John. I want to read you what John says. Beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. So John's going to quote for us what Mark doesn't. He's going to quote Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that means after his death, burial, and resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So if you have an outline, point number one is Jesus knows who he is and what he is doing point number 2 is the disciples don't know what's going on now brandon can answer this question for us how many times have we heard that the disciples don't know what's going on brandon all, all, like every sunday you go through here and you realize they're not it's not that they're stupid it's that jesus is doing and saying things that are so sideways and unexpected and it's not what they thought. And no matter how many times they see it, you would think feeding the 5,000, walking on water, every synagogue I go into in Galilee, demons are terrified of me. The guy that I'm following, everybody is terrified. The demons are scared of him. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. He's raising people from the dead. Nobody's seen anything like this, and you would think they—they—they they, they would something would click, and it's not. So you're in good company, and that's part of the reason I constantly bring this up is because you would think that after years of sitting in church and years of singing songs and years of reading the Bible that you would. No more than you do, and you realize, I realize, just how helplessly dependent we are on the Holy Spirit to open up our understanding to what is going on. This is another reason you should not be approaching the Bible like, well, it's just too complicated anyway. You, you should have some faith that says, when I read it, God's going to help me understand what I need to understand. And if I keep reading it, He's going to keep doing that. And the more that I read, the more I'm going to understand because he's going to help me to do that. But point number two is the disciples didn't understand what was going on. After the fact, they understood. But in this moment, when Jesus says, go get me that colt, they have no clue why they're doing it. They're just being obedient that might be a valuable thing to think about. Waiting around for perfect understanding is ridiculous if you're going to follow Jesus. You cannot wait around to understand all the stuff first, because you will be waiting around until you're dead. There there's a very funny, I've referenced this several times, but not everybody's heard it. There's this hilarious Babylon Bee esque article that was entitled Man 92 Dies Waiting for the Will of God. And then the article goes on to describe that he had all these gifts and talents, but he didn't want to arrogantly assume that he should do anything until he got some kind of crystal clear. Revelation to do something. So he sat on all these gifts and talents that he had waiting for crystal clear clarity, and he dies. That is a, it's meant to be funny, but it's tragically true. Christians sit around waiting for some special thing to happen. Here's the special thing to happen. Read your Bible, pray every day, work hard, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and just figure it out as you go. That is is the way we're supposed to live as Christians. Well, I don't know exactly. Neither today. Just do what you know to do, what you see to do. Read the scripture and let it speak to you. And if you don't have any goosebumps, join the club. Spiritual goosebump experiences, I'm not denying they happen. They do happen. You have these incredible moments with God. That's wonderful. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every week. If you're waiting around for special feelings, your walk with God is going to be just this roller coaster of primarily disappointment as you wait for some special thing. Don't wait. Go get the donkey and bring it to Jesus like he said. Don't try to understand it. There a reason for it. It's found in Zechariah chapter 9. It's found in Genesis 49. But they didn't get it at the time. They were just dumb enough to do what he said. And that's about as simple of a lesson as I can give to the church this morning. Just do what Jesus says. There's one more group here uh, for us to look at. And it's the way that the crowd is reacting to Jesus coming in. He's coming in from the eastern side. The temple is on the eastern side of the city. So hes if you picture driving in to, uh, to a city and you're driving into the side of the town that this big event is taking place or this big building that has a lot of activity in it, that's the way Jesus is coming in. He's coming in from the east. The temple is right here. And as he's walking down into the city, you have this scene, which we call Palm Sunday. Everybody know what Palm Sunday is? Greg, growing up Eastern Orthodox, has all kinds of memories, I'm assuming, of, of the, the, the actual literal bringing palms into the church and showing and demonstrating what they were doing. They're singing a song that's actually, and I again, I'd take forever to explain all this, but They're singing a liturgical song that is sung at the festival times. They're actually chanting. It's like a chant that they've done before, but they're doing it to Jesus when they start saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. What is the specific thing that they say? They've thrown their cloaks down. They're they're acting like Jesus is a king on a colt, So that they're getting some of the imagery, sort of, kind of. And they start into the singing, Hosanna, which means save us now. Save us now. It was an expression of worship. It's from Psalm 118. I want to read you uh, what Psalm 118 says. I want to start with verse 22, which is a messianic promise. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's that's a reference to Jesus, to the Messiah. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I say that almost every Sunday. Save us, we pray. Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is a section of the psalm that got done at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was very normal to hear it, kind of like it's normal for us to hear Christmas carols at Christmas. It was normal for them to recite this and sing this like a chant. And they're doing it to Jesus, riding on a colt that nobody's ever ridden on. The cloaks are being laid down in front like a red carpet going into Jerusalem as well as the palm branches. But how deep was it? Because they knew Jesus, this miracle worker, this teller of parables, this guy that demons were scared of was coming into Jerusalem. His reputation preceded him. They were excited. And I've got two thoughts. They, They knew he was something to be excited about, but the context of them being excited was probably if this guy is the Messiah, then... He's the warrior Messiah coming to lead a revolt. We'll wait and see what happens. Which is the same crowd of people that later on tell us, Give us Barabbas. Same group of people. The crowd is emotional, rightfully so. They sing the right words to the right Messiah. They are quoting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm predicting the very person their eyes are making contact with. But read this. Look at verse, uh, verse 10, uh, verse 9. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And I'm not going to spend time on this, but David, uh, David's kingdom was, was told by God in 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9 that the kingdom of David is going to have no end. So they're, they're acknowledging if, if this is him, this is the kingdom that has no end. and They're doing all the, all the things, all the stuff. But look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. It's almost anticlimactic. He enters enters Jerusalem, went into the temple. It's late. It's going to tell us that. When he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. With the twelve. Because the crowd is no longer with him. The crowd that was shouting is no longer with him when he's in the temple. Let me read you a verse. Darrell, I'm skipping down to Malachi chapter 3. There's so much in Malachi 3. I actually thought of Rob, because Rob always likes the Old Testament. and Rob, this is a passage that you just would love. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger. This is reference to John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is that moment. He comes into the temple. He looks around and then he goes back out of the city gates back to the village of Bethany. The only people that are with him now are the disciples. The crowd was emotional. They were hyped up. They were singing and saying all the right words. They got tired and they went home. Jesus the Messiah, is actually there. But they don't know that he's actually who they, they think he could be, but they're not sure. They're looking for a miraculous deliverance. They're not looking for a suffering servant. There's a, there's a warning in here for me as a Christian. There's a warning for all of us as a Christian. We can say all the right words. We can sing all the right songs. We can quote all the right verses. And not really be a disciple. I don't say that to be scary, but I do say it to say I see these things in Scripture all the time, that there are people that seem to know what all the right, Cultural things are that go with church. And it doesn't matter if you're a liturgical Anglican or Presbyterian, or if you like the church I was in in Uganda, where you have church for six hours and there's just non stop singing and worshiping and dancing and shouting and singing and worshiping and dancing and shouting. It doesn't matter what cultural context you're in, you can go through the motions in any context in any language, in any time in history. People, we are prone to be like this crowd. We are prone to like the moment, but miss the Messiah. The purpose of church and the purpose of our gathering is not to feel good about the fact that we did. The purpose is to glorify the King. The purpose of Jesus in this passage and the reason why it gets preached every single Easter in the triumphal entry is because it is it, Mark is focusing us in on Jesus, the Messiah, is here. He knows who we probably want to be like are the disciples, that though we don't get it all, we obey Him. We trust in Him. We don't just get excited and go home. But we put our trust and our hope into Jesus Christ. Because he is our only hope of salvation. And again, be encouraged by the fact that those disciples didn't get it. They didn't get all those nuances didn't connect all those scriptural dots. They didn't do any of it, but what they knew was, I am following Jesus. He is my hope and stay, to quote the old hymn. That is the only hope that I've got. And that is a simple thing for us to say. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter how strange or difficult it becomes. Now, Dave, I'm going to have you go get the children. And Renee, I'm going to have you go get ready. We have uh, an awesome thing that we're going to do this morning. We are going to have a baptism. So we're bringing the kids back. Greg, if I could have you, Daniel, take this lid off. If you guys could do that for me. And just set it over there on that wall. That is what this is. This is a baptismal. The water is warm. There's no extra spiritual brownie points if it's cold. I always I, I say that because I I remember hearing of a preacher that. In the Pacific Northwest, they, uh, when they did a baptism in the winter, <clears throat> there was a creek behind the church, and it it was usually frozen. And they would light a tire on fire, and toss it out onto the frozen creek, and it would melt down through. I'm sure, the EPA loved this. Uh, it would melt down through the uh, the ice, and then they would go out on the ice and just dunk the person down into that hole. Um, and by golly, you got baptized and hypothermia in the same. But let me let me share this about baptism while we're uh, we're going to wait for Renee to come back in. Um, uh, baptism is—you heard me pray this earlier. Baptism is a sacrament; it is a sacred act of the church, where we are um, having a public acknowledgment someone who has surrendered their life to Christ, has acknowledged Him as Lord, has repented of their sin, and the Bible says that uh, Jesus commands, He's going to command here at the end of Mark, uh, that we baptize. And and the reason for that is the the power, I hesitate to use the word symbol because symbol seems like a weak and flimsy word. Um, It is a really deep, uh, symbol that we are dunking somebody under the water, representing that they die to their old life, in the same way that Jesus was buried, and then we pull them up out of the water, representing that they are raised to new life, in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Bible says that that they are united. That we are united uh, in the Christ's death. We become. We're one with Him. So it is a powerful, powerful uh, symbol of what it means to be a Christian. And we like to have the kids in here when we do this. Oh my goodness. Since I have a chance I'll give another little sermonette here. If we uh if we don't teach our kids what normalcy is, the world will certainly do it for us. So, we have to want we want them to be around as much of what happens in church is possible and family I know we got family and friends you are welcome to to take pictures and do whatever you would like to do. Renee, you can come on up. Okay, good, good. You will just sit there. So, I just want to say before we uh, we baptize Renee, it's just been several months ago that she responded to a call to receive Christ. She did it right there. So, yeah. So, yes, we can give, yeah. So we're... Not that this means anything. We're just five feet over from where she prayed, uh, and we're going to be baptizing her. Um, and I'm just thrilled to no end that that God's rescued you and uh, poured out His grace and mercy. So you said you didn't want to say anything, correct? Okay. She, I, I always give a chance. She said she didn't want to. So church, I'm going to baptize her, and I want this is this is us as a church family. Uh, that we do this, and I want us to, to pray as I pray over Renee, and um, and then we're going to baptize her. So, Father, we come before you in the precious name of Jesus. We thank you for our dear sister in Christ. Lord, that is a glorious two-word thing to say, in Christ. Renee is no longer merely in herself, in the world. She is in Christ she has been placed there by the grace of God by the blood the death the resurrection of Jesus Christ lord we rejoice in what you have done and lord we pray that that she would shine like a light in this time that we live and god that she would continue to grow and we are confident lord that you who began a good work in her will see it completed until the very day of Jesus Christ so lord we rejoice with her, with her family, that we get to baptize her today. Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Or may we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come on up, there. Yes you can. yes, we will. We'll find your mommy and we will talk. I cannot think of a better way for us to end, but let's all stand up. Let's give the Lord we can give him praise this morning. that is totally fine. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Church, we love you. We, we appreciate you being here. Um, come back tonight at 6 o'clock for prayer. God bless you. If you're visiting, you can fill out one of these visitor cards. We'd love to get to know you better. And uh, you can put it in the bucket. You are officially dismissed. Thank you.